Now, coming into the pulpit the week after Easter, it seemed like a good time to start talking about forgiveness. Um, it's so clear as we work through the story of the cross that God paid such a high price to ensure that our sins would not be held against us, that we would receive forgiveness and be able to be in his presence. Christ's death and resurrection ensure that nothing could stand between us and the Father. It was about God's children being restored to him. The pinnacle moment of history was God's forgiveness of our sins through Christ Jesus. But it was not just our relationship with God that was restored, but also our relationships to one another. I hope you guys realize that as we're looking at that. See, what God has done is not just said, now there is no more enmity or hostility between us and God, but he has said, now there is no more enmity or hostility between us. So, doesn't that lead to an obvious question, though? Because I say something like, so now there's no enmity or hostility between us, but then you're like, but there is. So if our relationships with one another have been restored, then why haven't they been restored? Well, my first experience working with the church as a, as a minister was, was a difficult experience. Um, I spent seven years at my first church as the pulpit preacher. Um, I was fresh out of college, having graduated literally just two weeks before I was hired. All the professors at school, they all shared their horror story from early church experiences. And I thought to myself, surely these crazy stories were exaggerated. Well, maybe not as much as I thought they were. But before I get into the story, let me be clear. I don't want to speak ill of the congregation where I was. It's not that I have ill feelings toward them or that we weren't, don't have, I mean, we really loved it there. We did. Um, but we really had a rough time there when we started. Um, my time in New York contained some of the most valuable experiences I've ever asked, I could have ever asked for. They also contain some of the most valuable people to me now. Um, it, but it began in a very difficult manner with plenty of horror stories. The kind that I thought, no, they're just exaggerating. Surely people wouldn't do something like that. It's a church, right? And we did try to leave. But as we stuck with it and we continued to work with it, it became a place where we were not ready to leave. And I gained a family in New York that has great value to me. But it came through much struggle. When we came to Wald Lake, when Wald Lake came calling, we were not ready to leave Oswego at that time. Clearly God was, though. So at 22, I stepped into a congregation that had not had a preacher for the last three years. The last preacher was fired, causing a congregational split. The most recent in a series of three or four splits. There was no eldership of any kind and no sort of organized leadership. Those who exerted authority did it without the knowledge of anybody else, and they tended to do it behind closed doors when nobody knew about it. And then, that often ended up being in contradiction to somebody else who was exerting authority on their own and doing it behind closed doors all by themselves as well. So needless to say, it was, it was a bit of a mess. There were members who lived across the street from the church, but would drive an hour or more to go to church somewhere else. There were grudges 
galore. It was an absolute mess. And on top of it all, I had no idea what I was getting into. Our scripture reading from Ephesians today said that Christ has taken down the dividing wall of hostility and he's made peace between humanity. So what happened here? The longer I stayed in New York, the more I began to realize not only is there a problem, I began to realize what the problem was. There was an extreme lack of reconciliation and forgiveness. It wasn't the disagreements. It wasn't the fighting. It wasn't the fact that we didn't see eye to eye. It was that they couldn't get over the wrongs committed. It was that they couldn't get past the disagreements. They couldn't forgive and they couldn't come together. So at this point, my teaching began to focus not on our problems, because we got plenty of those. Let's face it, we've got plenty of problems, don't we? Like, let's not go through a list and start naming them all. But we've got plenty of problems. But here's the thing. Our problems are generally not the problem. The problem is not the issue presenting itself before us, but it's how we're addressing those problems. So we started to talk about how we should act in the midst of addressing those problems. For some reason, we have come to believe, and I think I can say this pretty generally, we as a whole have come to believe that for there to be peace means that we never disagree with one another. So if I disagree with you, that means there's not peace. Let me challenge you. Can we be at peace and still not see eye to eye? Absolutely. In fact, I'd even say that being in disagreement, being able to disagree in a healthy manner, is not just something that can happen, but it's something that should happen. We should be together, and we should disagree, and we should be at peace. Those things all work together. It's called diversity. That's how things happen. That's how good things come about, by having differing opinions, disagreements, and being able to work through those. It's not agreement we need. It's Christ. In fact, disagreement, as I said, is a good thing. We can disagree and still move forward together. So for that time, I started preaching on forgiveness. And we stuck to that message for almost a solid year. It took about four years, though, before it seemed like we were finally making any progress at all. It seemed like we were just beating our head against the wall, and it became so frustrating. It felt like we were getting nowhere. Then one day, we had a group over at our home for dinner. And mind you, one of the best ways to deal with um, problems, struggles, disagreements, have them over at your house for dinner. I'm telling you, the dinner table is one of the best ways to get together and work together. I was actually looking at my calendar the other day, and I was going, man, we eat a lot together. And I started adding up the days between Monday nights at my house with the teens, Wednesday nights with Bible Bowl, potlucks, and everything else. And without counting our camping trips, without counting missions, do you know how many meals I came up with that I have shared together with people in this church in the last year? I was at 110, 110 meals, without counting camping, without counting missions, without counting, you know, there's a lot more than that. So what I'm saying is, on average, one out of every three days, I was sharing a meal with someone in the church. That's, that sounds like a pretty good church to me. I like the idea of that, because food and people, let's put them together, right? 
Let's face it, this is, this is a really good way to deal with our problems. It's a really good way to work out those issues, food and people. All right? Speaking of, it's potluck after service today. Great day today, right? So, we were having a group over to our church, uh, from our ch- congregation, at our house, and we started talking to this one lady. Um, and she opens up her Bible, she grabs it, and I'm, I'm sure all of you have probably got, who have your Bibles with you, you probably open it up and there's tons of, whether it's bulletins or notes or all kinds of stuff leaf through your Bible, right? Well, she opens it up and she pulls out this letter. This letter had been in there for years. Before one of the splits, there was a friend of hers who was on the opposite side of the aisle from her. Not literally, but figuratively. They disagreed. This friend had gone on a letter-writing campaign to attack every person who disagreed with her, saying some very hateful things. And as we talked to this lady, it became clear that she had been very deeply hurt by what was in that letter. She had held on to it for almost... Ten years. So for ten years, this letter with this nasty, hateful thing said about her sat right there in her Bible. Every church service, every Bible study, every morning's devotion, she'd open it up. There it was. She couldn't move on because every time when she opened her Bible, it was there. When we talked about forgiveness for all that time, she eventually came to the realization she knew exactly what needed to happen. She had to get rid of that letter. What that passage in Ephesians tells us is that where Christ is, there is peace. And if there is peace where Christ is, then what do we know about where there is no peace? We know that Christ is not there. This was the problem in New York. A problem that caused us to experience some great personal growth. Christ had been removed from their conflicts. We had the Word of God which said, if you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you. But before we could get to that Word that said, if you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you, we had to get through this. This stopped us dead in our tracks. It rested between the Word of God and our hearts. It was not that Christ had not brought peace among humanity, but that we refused to let Christ in. We were so offended by the pain that we had experienced that we shut Christ out. Because if Christ got in, we knew exactly what He would do. And that was not acceptable. But peace and healing can only be found where forgiveness is practiced. When Jesus died on the cross, he came in response to the cry of victims. The poor were being abused. The faithful were being told they weren't faithful enough. And the weak were pushed to the outer edge of society. They cried out to God for help. And he sent his son to die for them. But realize this. God did not just send his son to die for victims. He sent his son to die and forgive the perpetrators as well. When we refuse to forgive, we begin to actively deny some basic aspects of the gospel. 
Each of these denials becomes a stumbling block placed between us and the peace of Christ. A letter in our Bible, keeping us from the Word of God. First and foremost, when we refuse to forgive, we begin to deny our own sin. In refusing to forgive, we forget how much we have been forgiven. We place that other person and their sin as somehow more dastardly than our own. What we did really was not that bad. I mean, sure, I needed, I needed Jesus' forgiveness, but they, they really need Jesus' forgiveness, right? We've never, never thought of anybody like that, right? They need a little bit of Jesus there. Mm. In fact, they're probably even beyond forgiveness, right? We become the man in the parable of the unmerciful servant, forgiven much, but unable to forgive little. You remember how that ended? He was thrown in prison. And then Jesus said, that is how the Father will treat each one of you if you refuse to forgive others. Jesus does not hold back when it comes to forgiveness. He hits that pretty hard. In refusing to forgive, we also deny the power of Christ's death and resurrection. We functionally, we functionally proclaim that even though Christ's death was good enough for me, it wasn't good enough for you. We announce that some sins are unforgivable and Christ's death does not have the power to overcome those. But the Bible teaches us that sin is sin and all need the same amount of forgiveness. Does this sound familiar? What height or depth can separate us from the love of God? And what was Paul's answer? Nothing. No, none. Not at all. Because by God's power, all sin, no matter degree, has been overcome and forgiven for all. How can we hold anything against someone that God does not hold against them? Also, when we refuse to forgive, we begin to deny the humanity in others. We begin to, and we begin to become the perpetrators ourselves. Humanity, every single one of us was created to be children of God. That is the identity of humanity. When we refuse to forgive, we proclaim that that individual is not a child of God and is not deserving of his love. As Brian Zan says, Jesus came to save the world, not to save us from the world. You guys understand the difference there? He didn't come to save you from that person who did you such a terrible thing. He came to save that person who's doing such a terrible thing. Jesus didn't come to save me from everything around me. He came to save everything around me. Does that make sense? And if I am saved, that means I'm part of the solution to everything around me. What happens when we refuse to forgive is that we begin to become the one in the wrong. Think of it this way. Oh, who's, who here has a mortgage? That's fun, right? Okay. So let's say, for example, I owed $50,000 on my mortgage and I'm unable to pay it. What's going to happen? There goes my house, right? Because they're going to take it. And, and you know what? Nobody's going to be like, oh, that bank is so wrong to take that house. No, I didn't pay my bills. It's their right to recoup what they can to cover their losses. They are within their right to hold it against me. But let's say, for example, 
David over here. David grows up and he has hit it big. He has graduated college because David's going to college. He's going to get straight A's, right, Mom? Yep. Because David's smart because he's a homeschooler. And he got himself a real good job. And he sat there and he goes, man, Zach can't pay his bills. And think about all the food I ate at his house on Mondays. And David's like, you know what? I'm going to pay that. Thank you so much, David. You're so sweet. So suddenly, because of David, I no longer owe anything, right? You're all thinking, man, I need to know a David in here. Yeah, there, there he is right there. Everybody go get to know him. So I no longer know anything, but the bank shows up and takes my house anyway. Um, doesn't quite work, right? I mean, they're not recouping their losses anymore. They're committing a crime. They've now become the one in the wrong. My bills are paid. It's covered. Why are they trying to take more from me? The same thing happens when we refuse to forgive. All sin is ultimately against God. And God has chosen to forgive that debt by paying it himself. But then we still go and hold that debt against others. Now it's become about vengeance, not about justice. We have become the person in the wrong. Desmond Tutu, a uh, prominent South African bishop who served on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission following apartheid in South Africa, he quoted what he called an African idiom in saying, a person is a person through other persons. Read that again. A person is a person through other persons. When we don't forgive, we dehumanize others. We make them less than a person. And by removing them from our lives, now the very thing that makes us a person becomes re removed as well, and we become less of a person. We dehumanize ourselves. There is pain experienced when we've been wronged. Forgiveness is not the denial of that pain. It's not saying nothing happened. But it is the only path towards healing from it. In 1 Peter 1, 13 and 14, God promises us that we are blessed if we suffer for the name of Christ. If we suffer because of the wrong done against us, God is with us, blessing and looking out for us. But it also says that if we suffer because we refuse to forgive, if we suffer because we've done wrong, we're suffering as evildoers. 1 Peter says that blessing and the Spirit of God are not with us. God promises comfort in that struggle. But if we choose to hold on to the wrong committed against us, if we choose to refuse to forgive, if we choose to put ourselves in the place of the one doing the wrong, we now remove that source of comfort from amongst us. In Christianity, forgiveness is one of the most basic acts of faithfulness. Not basic as in easy, but basic as in necessary. As Christians, we should not be asking if we should forgive, but we should be asking, how should we forgive? Sometime back, and we'll talk about this more in two weeks, but sometime back, it was, uh, I believe it was in 2000, oh, maybe 2010, Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, 10 Amish children were killed in a shooting as a man, as a man entered their schoolhouse full of hate. The initial response from the community well, their initial response was to reach out to the family of that man 
to his mom and dad and offer forgiveness. They came knocking at their door, and they opened the door, and at the door was this whole, about 40 Amish families. And the two people who first embraced the mother of the killer was the mother and father of two daughters who died in that tragedy. And so you look at that and go, how? Why? Isn't this a little ridiculous? And the whole world was thinking this, too. So the reporter shows up and he asks an elder from the Amish community, how can you do this? How can you forgive such a thing? His response was, we have to forgive. Refusing to forgive is not an option. It's just a normal part of our living. Listen to this last line. It's just standard forgiveness. It's just standard forgiveness? Wow, that's rough. I mean, if we start talking about just some standard forgiveness here, we're going to hit some deep issues, aren't we? Yamash practiced something called decisional forgiveness. It means they forgive not because they feel like it or because they're over it, but they forgive because they've decided to. Forgiveness does not mean the pain goes away, but that we have made the decision to walk the difficult path of healing that brings Christ to the center. When we hold on to the wrong that has been committed against us, when we place hope in the idea that one day they'll get what's coming to them, we don't just do injustice against them, but we do injustice against ourselves and against God. We will never find healing while we hold on to that letter in our Bible. As long as this is there, there will not be healing. You will not be able to move on. And you will not be able to have healthy relationships. After my experience in New York, I, I make a point of deleting or throwing away any hurtful communication that I've received. It's, it's not about pretending that it's never happened. It's not about forgetting, but it's about evaluating motives. Why would I hold on to that letter? Why would I keep that email? Why would I keep that text? Because then, ammunition. I can go back and see, see what you said? See, you are the one in the wrong, and I am the one in the right. You deserve everything you're getting. I hold and in holding on to such things, all I hold on to is bitterness. All I hold on to is hostility. All I hold on to is a desire for vengeance. In holding on to those things, though, there's one thing that I'm not holding on to. Verse: Christ has taken down the dividing wall of hostility. Where Christ is, there is peace which means where there is bitterness, where there is hostility, where there is a desire for vengeance, where is Christ not at? He's not there. So if this letter is in my hands, if this letter has made it into my heart, I can tell you one thing that is not in there. As we begin to close today, I want to challenge you to do two things. First, I want to challenge you to let go. Whether they are physical letters, physical texts, whatever they are, emails, whatever, throw them away, trash them, delete them, whatever you have to do. Remove those things, not just out of your sight, remove them permanently. Whatever it takes, remove the obstacles that stand between you and the Word of God. Hold on to nothing that causes you to remain barricaded from forgiveness. You will never find healing 
or be able to move on until you let go. Second, make a conscious decision today to forgive what's going to happen. You understand what I'm saying? So in other words, you're saying, I know that Brandon's going to do something nasty to me later today. Maybe I don't know that, but Brandon's going to. He's going to say something hurtful. But because I'm already prepared to forgive whatever happens, I mean, I don't know what's going to be Brandon, but it's going to be. I'm ready to forgive that, and I'm ready to just let that wash right off my shoulders, right? Brandon, I forgive you for what you're about to say. Oh, Brandon's a nice guy. He'd probably never do anything to me. So start praying now, though. Build up your strength. Become stubborn and determined that no matter what's done to you today, no matter who does it, that you're going to choose to forgive. You predetermined to forgive because before it is ever needed. I'm sorry. You predetermined to forgive before it's ever needed because God in His grace and love predetermined to forgive you, to die for you before you were ever born. Forgiveness takes training and it takes preparation. So let us prepare now because we will need to forgive somebody very soon. I think we can say amen there, right? We are going to need to forgive somebody very soon, aren't we? Right? Absolutely. The world cannot overcome us, though, because Christ has already overcome this world. And because we will choose to allow nothing to become become between us and Christ. We will choose to take Christ with us into all places and relationships. Because where Christ is, there is peace. And where Christ is, there is forgiveness. And where Christ is, there is healing. So I encourage you as we close today to take advantage of any help you can find in this battle. Don't surround yourselves with those who are going to say, you're right, you should be angry, they should have never done that to you. Instead, surround yourself with peacemakers. And yourselves try to become peacemakers. Remember what Jesus said about, he said something about peacemakers, didn't he? Something about blessed are peacemakers, right? I invite you to ask for resources. If you need help, if you need something to read, trust me, I have got books I have got articles, I've got verses, I've got all kinds of things I can direct you towards. Because remember, I've spent a lot of time talking about forgiveness. So please, ask. This is an area where I can provide you with many resources and references, and I encourage you to take advantage of that. In a moment, we're going to all stand and sing one last song together. Um, And as we do that, I'm going to invite you to come forward for prayer. And if you wish to take on the Lord in baptism, I wish you to come forward as we sing. But before we do, uh, let's, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you today, Father, that no matter who we are, no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, no matter who we've said what to, that you chose to die for us, Father. We thank you that you chose to do that before we did anything wrong in the first place, Lord. But you knew, you knew we would do something. And you knew that we are your children, and you love us, no matter what that something was going to be, you were going to die for us and forgive us. Father, may we have Christ living within us, and may we make those same decisions today. May we choose the way of peace over the way of bitterness. May we choose to put Christ in the center of all our relationships. May we choose to let go and throw down anything that stands between us and your word. And Lord, may we hold on to nothing but you, Father. May we be surrounded by peacemakers, and may we ourselves become peacemakers that we may surround others. 
It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.